0: You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Amen. Well, welcome and good morning. Welcome to our Sunday gathering. My name is Josh. I'm one of the elders here at Redeemer. And I was not originally scheduled to be here this morning. Pastor Jordan was on the schedule, but he's really sick. I know he's really sick. He didn't just throw me a last-minute curveball. Uh, Last week, if he would have gave me predestination, I might have been a little suspicious, but he's not feeling well. So please be in prayer for him and, uh, and pray for his recovery. And I am excited to be here, excited to be able to share in this text. This text is so good, I know that he wouldn't miss this one so if he wasn't feeling really bad. So pray for Jordan. Um, if you're a visitor with us, I just want to welcome you to our gathering. We really believe that although it looks really simple and unimpressive in what we do, that God meets us in the very simple means of his word being proclaimed, read, sung, preached, and taken in communion week after week. And so, when we gather, this is a sacred time that we expect the Holy Spirit to work in and through the Word of God. And so, we are glad that you're here, family, church family, those of you that are regular, so glad that you're here as well. Um, we have been in a series in the book of, or in the chapter of Romans 8. And last week, we looked at Romans 8, 28 through 30, where Paul reminds us of God's sovereign working of all things for our good, for the good of those who love Him. And Pastor Jordan gave us this great analogy of a house of grace, showing us room after room of of the things we've looked at in Romans chapter 8 of God's grace given to his people, forgiveness and mercy and healing and all these wonderful rooms. And then he talked about going up to the top story and looking down on all of it and kind of getting a bit of God's perspective over his sovereignty over it all. And certainly there are confusing questions that come with God's sovereignty and his predestination of his plan, and there's there's things that we just don't get because we're human and God is God. But there is a wonderful assurance in that, that we know what God started in us, he will bring to completion. That when he calls us to himself, he will also sanctify us, and one day he will glorify us, raise us to newness of life. It was a wonderful sermon. If you missed it, go back and give it a listen. And today, we're continuing, we're actually closing out Romans chapter 8, and we're going to look at verses 31 through 39, as we just read. And in our text today, Paul is going to answer, he's going to ask and answer some really difficult questions, questions that come up for those of us who attempt to follow Jesus in a world where sin and suffering are still present. And I think at the heart of those questions is really this, God, do you love us? Do you love us? Because it feels like we face constant opposition. Do you love us even though we are sinful people and we have a past and there's things that we feel guilty and condemned about and we continue to struggle with, do you love us? God, do you love us? Because if we're honest, it feels like sin and death are getting the final word right now. Suffering surrounds us. So we're gonna wrestle through these questions with Paul and get a resounding answer. You've already seen it in the text, but we'll get there. That nothing can separate us from God's love. Let's pray and then we'll jump into the text. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I thank you for the grace to come together around your word and the promise that you will meet us, that you will meet with us as we gather. Lord, each person comes in here bringing different worries and anxieties and hurts and fears and maybe one of these couple questions we're going to wrestle with today, maybe they're wrestling that in in their gut right now. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that this truth, this gospel song of your love to us in Christ would just be a ray of hope into their soul this morning. That your song would sing louder than any song of sin and death. It is in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, let's jump back into verse 31 and 32. Paul says this, What then shall we say to these things, right, all that he's unpacked? In Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So Paul in this text asks a question. Our first question that we're going to ask today is who can come against us, right? Um, Paul obviously knows that uh, he's faced opposition and as a follower of Jesus, you'll face opposition. So he brings up this question of who could come against us. And it almost feels like a mean question in our culture because it's like, well, what do you mean who could come against us? All sorts of things come against us. Think of Paul, though. He and the early church knew this. He ministered in a context where he was seen as a betrayer of the true God, where his, his teaching was seen as heresy. Christianity was a sect at best of Judaism and oftentimes treated like a cult, sometimes tolerated, oftentimes persecuted. And so if you were a follower of Jesus in the first century, it's very likely that you would face harsh opposition. It seems like Paul's favorite place to have his quiet times and, and write in his journals was in jail sales. <laughs> he faced constant opposition And throughout the history of the church and in some parts of the world today, the church faces fierce opposition. Who can come against us? There's a whole lot of things that feel like they come against us. And it makes us ask this question of God, uh, in light of all that's against us, do you really love us? Like, look at all the opposition we're facing now we don't live in a time where the government is going to storm in and haul us off to jail. Not yet, Lord willing. But we are increasingly living in a time where you probably feel a little bit of opposition when you start to open your mouth about what you believe about Jesus in your workplace. When you start to post that particular thing, and sometimes you should have to pause before you post, right? We've talked about that before. But you're starting to feel that. Like, it, it, to follow Jesus in our culture, really in any culture, it feels like swimming against the current. And sometimes it's just, it's just tiring. And it's like, am I crazy? Are we crazy? What, what's going on here? We face opposition. Maybe it's not extreme, but it can still be meaningful. It can be as, as meaningful as a family member who just doesn't understand that Jesus stuff that you're always talking about, that you've devoted your life to. In this age, we will face opposition. And at times, it will cause us to second guess if we're crazy. Like, if, are we, have we lost our minds? Should we just kind of jump into one of the polarized streams of our culture right now that seems to be crazy right-wing politics or crazy left-wing politics? Like, it would just be smoother to sail in one of those streams. And there might be a day where the opposition comes to a place where it costs you it could cost you a job promotion because of what you stand for, what you believe. It could cost you status in society. It could cost you the, the discomfort of having to have difficult conversations with, with almost everyone you meet, you feel like. But Paul reminds us, if God is for us, who can be against us? The promise is though things will come against us, we will not be defeated, and that God's grace is more than sufficient. I love what it says here. I think oftentimes opposition in our culture can cause us to have a certain status or maybe earning power in that culture because of what we value and the way we want to live as Christians. But what Paul is saying, it certainly did in the first century. They weren't the, the rich and the elites of their culture. They weren't the ones in power. Paul's writing from jail cells. It cost him a lot. I'm sure when he was eight years old, it wasn't the life that he dreamed to be writing about God in a jail cell. But what does he say here? What does Paul say here? What song does he sing to us? He says, if God has not withheld his son from you, will he not give us all things? Christian, you might feel like you're missing out on certain things sometimes. But there is a promise that God is going to give us all things He's given us his son, we're going to talk more about in the next question, the sacrifice of his son, but also you have an inheritance coming. We've already talked about this earlier in Romans 8. He is not withholding anything from you. Hear this. God loves you, and in Christ you can know that he is not holding back. He's pouring him whole, his whole self out to his church. Let's keep reading verse 33 and 34 who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. This brings up a second question. (laughs) Who shall bring a charge against God's chosen people? That's what he's saying here. Who shall bring a charge against us? Again, (laughs) If you're a person that's in in touch with your sin and you're aware that you are a sinner, this kind of question can make you feel uncomfortable, and it should. Who can bring a charge against us? Well, let's go down the list. Uh, There's an accuser, Satan, who's constantly at work bringing charges against us, uh, not in a good way, but in a way that's leading us to despair. Uh, There's our own inner critic, right? How many of you have a strong inner critic? You don't have to raise your hand. Uh, I'm already critical of myself for saying that. So... um, (laughs) constantly criticizing or cutting down. And here's the, here's the thing. The, the accuser and the critic, There are some things that they say that are true about us. There's some ugly things about us that our critic, that your inner critic, is absolutely right about. There's some things he's not right about, too, and we'll, we could deal with that another time. There's also others that criticize us and, and say things. Perhaps when we were a, a kid or a child, an adult, a teacher, uh, a person you respected said something really piercing to you, and it just stuck with you. I know that when I was a, a, a freshman in college, I moved from you know, 12 people in a class at Hutto ISD, uh, 2A high school, to 50 to 60 at, at Texas Tech University, and I was in an economics class, which I, I'm not great at economics, the charts and graphs throw me off, but the teacher called on me and I thought, man, I've got a good answer for this. This is like one of the first few weeks of school and I say an answer and she's just like, no, that's, like, no, that's ridiculous. Um, and that stuck with me so much, I don't know that I spoke again in a class for four years right? I still remember vividly her face and that moment. Like, it sticks with us. And and the reality is, it kind of sticks with us because there is this fear, and we know that deep down we do have some guilt. We do have some things that are ugly, some things we've done that we're not proud of, some things that continue to go on that we struggle with. But... God meets us in a different way than our culture and than those around us than our inner critic. God doesn't tell us to pretend there's nothing wrong. What does he do? How does he meet us when we when we deal with the 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 question of well who could bring a charge against us? We could say it quite simply, it's Jesus' body given for you, Jesus' blood shed for you. When you feel shame and guilt, God doesn't offer accusation or condemnation, but complete forgiveness in Jesus. And this isn't an excusing forgiveness. This isn't like, hey, I'm okay with sin, and I excuse it, I'm fine with it, right? It's not that. It's not cheap grace. It's a forgiveness that says, I forgive you at my own expense, at my body and my blood given, and I want you near to me because the whole problem in the first place is that we were separated and you were out there acting like a little idiot orphan and now I want to bring you in so I can call you son and daughter. You are welcome into my family and into my presence. There's a fundamental problem we have anyways. We've been separated from our dad and we need to be near. And that's the kind of forgiveness, the kind of atonement that Jesus offers to us that Paul is gonna sing over us when a charge or something comes up. It might actually be true, it might not be true. But guess what Jesus meets us with? His forgiveness and his welcoming presence to not leave us in our sin, but to free us from the bondage of it. You see, in our culture, we live in an increasing time of unforgiveness and condemnation. And the only ladder we're given is kind of this self-atonement ladder that you do better. I think it's why potentially there's so much virtue signaling in our culture because people know deep down there's, there's something wrong that corporations maybe know they're guilty of something, but we do all these little cheap virtue signals trying to earn our favor back, to earn that we're okay. Jesus does not condemn us. He offers us forgiveness. He invites us to confess honestly, to agree with him that sin is awful, and to turn from it, to not even walk down that road. The word repentance is is kind of this word that if we're walking this way down a path, repentance is not that we just stop and say, okay, and we keep walking. Repentance is we turn around and we walk down a new road. We walk away from sin and towards Christ. Imagine for a moment that you are uh, standing in the courtroom of God's judgment. This is not going to be a fun exercise. I almost skipped it, but I want to do it. Um, Imagine that your life is going to be played from the moment you were born to the moment of your death in front of the whole courtroom to see. And that every thought and every evil intention of your heart is going to be laid at the table and laid open. In some ways, we, we believe this is going to happen in the judgment day, in the courtroom of, of God's uh, judgment. What is your answer for your life? What, what is your hope that God would declare to you to be good and welcomed into his space, into his dwelling? I think very simply for us, church family, it's Jesus' body than Jesus' blood given for us. It's Jesus for us, and that's good news. It's good news to know that he's taken the penalty and he's offered a welcome, so that when we stand before a holy God, we don't have to self-atone and come up with all these reasons why, well, here's why I did this. We don't have to self-justify, we can plead the blood of Jesus and be pardoned because of him. God loves us and He gave His life for us, forgiving all our sin and welcoming us into His presence. Let's keep reading. Another question that comes up, verse 35 and 36. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul's pause here for a minute. Paul asks another question. What can separate us from the love of Christ? God, do you love us when our world falls apart? I think this last question is kind of the buildup of all the other questions. It kind of sums them all up in kind of this, almost, I hear it coming out in like this guttural way. If you've ever suffered in a deep moment where you don't even know what to say, we talked about this a few weeks ago, there's just this guttural moan of God, do you love us? Because it seems like sin and death are so real. That seems to be the ultimate reality. In this evil age, people will oppose us. We will deal with our own sin and struggles, and we will suffer. And suffering seems to bring out one of the deepest questions of the soul. God, have you forsaken us? Have you forsaken us? You know, sometimes I think we we can get uncomfortable when we start asking those really difficult questions and we can kind of put on the smiley, hey, no, cheer up. It's all going to work out. It's going to be great. Romans 8.28 is a kind of a smiley verse, right? And yet the Bible is brutally honest about the difficulty of this life. Sound like a smoke alarm over there. Hello, gotta go change the battery. The Bible's brutally honest. Uh, Psalm 44, which I want to read, verse 17 through 26. I just want you to see the brutal honesty here about the suffering we face and, and the depths that it calls us to cry out and even lament and question God. Psalmist says, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. And we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back. Our steps have not departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would God not discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's what he was quoting. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. You see, church family, we live in the tension of incredibly good news that God has come to make a way for us to be forgiven, to be rescued, to be brought and adopted into a new family, to be filled with his spirit, and yet it's not complete. It's finished work, but it's not a completed work. And the age of sin and death, the sting of sin and death is still here. It's still the reality of the world that we live in. We live in a posture of waiting and longing for the kingdom to be completed. But until then, we're gonna brush up against and often live with the difficulty of a world of sin and death and suffering. And we wait in a promise that We don't know when it's going to be completed. Think think about all the Old Testament figures that died in their suffering, hoping in God. You know, the Exodus story, there's a beautiful story of rescue, right, in Exodus, but there's 400 years of generation after generation who died in slavery. There's a generation that died in the wilderness, hoping on a promised land. There are saints in the New Testament that died proclaiming the excellencies and the risen Savior. They gave their blood, hoping in something they didn't see in their life. And as we live, at some point, we're going to brush up against the deep suffering of this age, and we're going to feel that gut punch that drives us to ask, even doubt to lament like this psalm, God, do you love us? I want you to know it's okay to ask that question. Psalmist gives us permission. God, do you see us? Do you see me? Do you see my marriage? Do you see my child? Do you see my country? Do you see my church? Do you see your church? When we seek to follow God, perhaps move to maybe even another country, we're rearranging our whole family for his purpose, and everything crashes and doesn't come according to plan. When our health or a child's health fails, when we want to trust that the church is God's beautiful plan to display his glory, but yet another leader who we've trusted and even looked up to falters and fails and just carnage everywhere. God, do you love us? Are you sure? When we're trusting God to provide financially, and we've heard the stories of the mysterious check coming in the mail. How many of you heard that story? And it never came. And you go into debt, and you lose the business, and you feel like a fool. When a friend who you've walked in love uh, and, and gone to church with for years walks away from Jesus and they just ghost you and leave the relationship in shambles. When governments turn on believers, when they haul them off to jail, when they even put them to death, there's this deep guttural cry, God, do you love us? And Paul is bringing this question up so he can sing a song to us of God's love. Look at verse 37 and 39. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ, that in Christ Jesus our Lord. This word conquerors here, sometimes I think of it as like, I think of like a warrior, a warrior. Uh, it, the Greek, it's really it, it kind of translates to super conqueror. You could say super overcomer. It doesn't mean that, hey, this is someone who wins everything, that excels in everything, that follows that American trajectory of up and to the right on our growth chart. But it's someone who continually overcomes adversity. It doesn't mean we'll get every promotion, win every game. It means that we will come through it all. Because when God's love is attached and committed, it is powerful and it pulls us through, even when we can't move a muscle, even when we are lifeless and dead. This was really the promise of Scripture that helped me when I was fourteen years old to overcome some crippling anxiety. I was a hypochondriac. I'm not going to go into all that story. I always thought something was wrong, so I was, you know, going I knew it was around the corner, going to die, whatever. Uh, and there's a there's a truth to that, right? There there could be. But it it was it was it was terrible for me living in that. But this reality, that God's love is so attached to His people, that even when it looks like we've lost, even when they've laid us six feet underground and we can offer nothing, we have no voice to cry out, we have no actions to do, God's love will raise us up. There it is. Church family, do you hear this song? God loves you and not even death can separate you from his resurrecting love. Not even death. Nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. There is a reality of living in a world where sin and death have reached havoc. Our own sin leaves us with shame and guilt, leaves us open to accusation and condemnation. The sins of others hurt and harm relationships. Marriages are difficult. Families are difficult. All of us are sinners and we've been sinned against. There's this resultant suffering. Bodies ache, break down, dreams shatter, nations rage, wars break out, jobs fail. If we were to say that sin is a song, it plays pretty loud, it's like a funeral dirge over our lives that sometimes the volume feels deafening. And while this song can cer- can certainly, uh, certainly continues on, God has given us a song to sing while we wait and long for the completion of our redemption. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Would you just hear this again slowly? I want you to close your eyes. Listen to this. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come in the future, nor powers, no height, nor depth, nor, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You can open your eyes. This is the song that Paul was given that was passed on to him. This gospel good news. I'm only using song as a metaphor, by the way. There's no actual song if you're a literalist person. I'm not going to sing. But this is the song we've been given in church family This is the song that week after week as we gather, certainly hopefully in Romans 8 in this series, and really every week that we sing that is sung over us so we can hear it and remember it. And here's how I want to close this series and invite us, is that we are hearing this song, but also Romans goes on to invite us to become singers and participants in playing the song. I want to use the analogy, I'm not a music guy, so I'm careful in this, but of a choral symphony. Because there's a variety, Romans goes on to talk about there's a variety of gifts and and, uh, abilities and talents and parts of the body, right? Romans chapter 12. For us, there's a variety of instruments and voices and parts. And the church is God's orchestra that he calls out to live in this old age. And yet we play the song of God's love come to us in Jesus. This is the song he's given to us. And this morning, I want you to hear it and I want you to begin to play it. We play the song of God's promises with our words, with our actions, with our lives, with our gifts, with our talents being offered back to him in praise. We sing with our actions as we comfort a hurting child, as we feed a family in need, as we adopt an orphan that needs a home, as we give a kind and a wise word to a friend, as we use our talents to bless others for God's glory. We play the song with our actions as we parent through a tough season. We drive that neighbor to the airport out of the way when we endure hardship and suffering, not perfectly, but keeping faith. We sing with our words as we speak the truth in love to a brother or sister in Christ, as we say hard things with a kind heart, as we check in, bear with, seek out, encourage, and exhort. We play the song for one another when we show up and we can say nothing at all, but we can just be present in a time of suffering. We play the song when we're asked to give an answer for the way we live, and all we can point to is the body and blood of Jesus Christ given for us. We sing the song when our treasure and our talent and our time is generously given to those in need, when we support the local church and God's mission. We don't hoard what we have, but we offer it back as a sacrifice of praise to show supreme value in our God. Church family, may we continue to gather around week after week and hear this gospel song because we need it. The song of sin and death is loud enough. It's always humming in the background. But may we also, filled with the Spirit, May God help us with our unique instruments and voices and lots in life to sing that song, to be a chorus reminding one another and the world around us that Jesus Christ is Lord. And although doubts and lament and hurt come up, that for those who belong to him, there is nothing, nothing, nothing that can separate us from his love. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are at the core a lover and you long to know us so much so that you gave your son to pay the penalty for our rebellion and you offer that gift to us freely and invite us into your family. Lord, when we we doubt your love, when, when, when we lament the conditions of this world, would you, in your Holy Spirit, just pour out your love into our hearts? When we don't feel like singing, when we don't feel like uh, there is a song of hope, would you remind us, through your body, the church, that you are Lord, <laughs> and you're not just any sort of king, you're a king that loves his children. You've given us the gift of your Spirit, You've given us the promises of your word to stand and hold on to. So while we wait and long for your kingdom, we trust what you say. It is in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.